Hello, I'm Paige, and this is the Euro Intelligence Podcast covering current affairs in the EU and Eurozone. I'm joined by Wolfgang and Susanna, directors of Euro Intelligence in Oxford. Uh, the big theme this week, guys, was the impossibility of regulating the internet. Wolfgang, you've been looking at Bitcoin, and we were also spending a bit of time on the battle between Facebook and the government of Australia. Uh, let's start with Bitcoin. How do you regulate a technology like Bitcoin? That is the essential aspect about Bitcoin. It is that it has a technology behind that is not regulatable. Blockchain isn't a computer, isn't, you know, isn't a hard disk. It isn't somebody's business model where, you know, the regulators can get into and basically demand to see more, trans- more information. It is a, it is an internet based network, highly encrypted, unbroken as far as we understand or we know. And, you know, it's used not only for Bitcoin, it is now used, we've heard a new story this week that it is used for right-wing blogs as an attempt to become resistant to regulation, because once the information is in the blockchain, you will find it's, it's you know, there's nothing that can be banned yeah. uh, because it's sort of the, the, you know, think of the blockchain as sort of in the internet, it's in the computers, it's everywhere. Uh, it's not a physical place where it, where it resides. And, you know, we see this also in this conflict with Facebook and the dispute between the Australian government, where the old media is striking back, trying (laughs) to get the new media to pay a tax, basically, to sustain the old media. I generally see a trend away from our ability to regulate this world and in the way we've done this. Uh, there are ways to, you know, to do this through users. I mean, in the end, these are all creation of people and, and, and users. So if we get user preferences to change, that's how we change those, how Bitcoin works. But if we, you know, what we're doing now, if we keep demonizing them, if we keep, you know, putting them or criminalizing them, the more outrage we produce, the more counter-reaction we get. And you can see this on, on Twitter with these very extreme discussions on the Bitcoin community versus yeah. detractors. You find that these, um, you know, these people are foaming. Crazy. Um, there is no rational discourse. And that's partly because... You know, I mean, especially if you if you get discussions between economists and Bitcoiners, they are, you know, the economists don't understand this world. It goes against everything they believe in. Central bankers hate it because it's, you know, it's a loss of control and control really matters to them. It's, uh, you know, it's the antithesis of what, what they stand for. Mm-hmm. And, the, you know, many Bitcoiners, they come from a different world, from the world of information technology, from the world of physics, from the world of IT, uh, from the world of your know, mathematics. The lack of respect for economic theories is not a from their point of view, it's not a, it's not a bug, it's a feature. And uh, so, so we have, so we have big ideological debates, but this is not a debate that's settled by, you know, economists saying, you know, you are economically illiterate and that's it. Because Bitcoin has been in operation since 2009 without interruption. Um, this is a network that has been proved very stable. This is now 11 years, uh, 12 years now. This is here to stay. So one would need to think about what consequences there are. And the regulatory approach of trying to control it, I think, is the wrong one. I mean, what I find interesting is that um, in combination with the anti-establishment mode, blockchain allows this kind of deep dive into privacy. And we don't actually have to go there and have to face the institutions. The regulation is one aspect of it, but also we've seen, I think you wrote about it in your column, uh, about 
um, that it, bitcoins was also used in order to back her campaign for Navalny uh, mm. in order not to be traced. In such a way, uh, you can see uh, campaigns coming out of nowhere uh, where they actually define what is politically relevant. And I think there is a question, there are valuable questions that probably will come up on the political agenda. What what does it mean? Uh, definitely as a, as a symptom of... Um, of manifesting this loss of trust. And if that's kind of something that the the blockchain or the Bitcoin people find by creating that market that is untraceable is and also unownable in a sense, and there is no hierarchy and, and no nothing that is actually resembling any institution that they know, uh, that's kind of an interesting phenomenon. I mean, it's a democratic process. I mean, it, you know, Bitcoin is basically what its users are. So if the majority of the Bitcoiners are crooks, then the system is is uh, <laughs> is, is, is is a fraud fraud. But if it's majority of users, you know, use this to bypass dictators and and channel resistance to them then it can be used to good good purpose if it's used to undermine democracy it can be used to bad purpose so it's an ultimately it's an ultimately very democratic system the question with all these systems does it have does it have the resilience for example, what what if the system does? I mean, the, the economists make the point that it, it is in many respects like a gold standard. It can produce depressions. There are no policy instruments, so in the, that is an unfiltered gold standard. What happens if this this community goes into a recession when there aren't enough bitcoins around to uh, to to generate demand? Um, when everybody starts creating excess savings in the hope of benefiting from future deflation, that system hasn't been tested yet. Yeah. Um, so, and we haven't seen big, you know, it could be used for money laundering, be a horde of criminal activity. So there are issues that one needs to address, but ultimately it will be the users of that system that will determine what that system is and how it is used. At least if you can remember all the numbers that you have to put in. <laughs> <at> the, you <laughs> know. Yeah, you're cute. <laughs> like we were saying, um, it's kind of yes. you're, you're unable to really do anything about Bitcoin apart from finding someone who has a lot of it and holding a gun to their head to get the, <laughs> to get their ID off them. Um, but yeah, that was one element of your column that I really liked was seeing the potential for Bitcoin to be used for good because you're right, it has its roots in... Uh, the dark web and Silk Road, um, you know, some kind of illicit activities. And for that reason, I think a lot of the community is really skeptical of going mainstream, of following regulations, which, as we saw, you know, with Facebook are basically 10 years behind the curve at this point. I mean, um, Facebook isn't really the avant-garde anymore. Yeah. Uh, yeah I mean, my son's, uh, our son says that uh, it's for old people. It's for dinosaurs. <laughs> oh, <laughs> so, it is, so, though. It is. <laughs> so, so, I mean, here is, here is, you know, what you see in Australia is a very, very old old technology against an old technology. Uh, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's an interesting thing to watch. And it's certainly an issue about dependency and uh, whether, you know, how many it's surprising to see how many government agencies were dependent on it. Um, that's that raises you know issues of you know, monopolistic control, but the, this is not the future. So the the, the 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 idea that the media can tax the system, 
this is outright ludicrous. Yeah. And that was sort of the first generation where they basically, you know, where their lobbyists go out there and say, and, you know, and make the claim is yes, because Google and Facebook are using, you know, our content, we, you know, we need to be recompensated. And that is, you know, true to a certain extent. Yeah. Google cut a deal with the, with the newspaper industry, yeah. give them a bit of money. Um, it's not going to make the difference between the media being viable or not. The newspapers and print media in particular have lost their business model. And that's that's not going to change it. You know, there's still markets for for information, quality information, but the, the old business models don't work anymore. The especially the advertising based business models where publishers got advertisers and directed advertisers to to readers. That you know, that's what Google does, and that's what Facebook does, and what other social media do. That's their business model. They have taken over that that market, uh, and they're doing it. They're doing it from an advertiser's perspective much more succinctly and better because they, they, you you know exactly where your advertising goes to. You can measure it. So so that game that battle is lost. Mm-hmm. Um, there are other battles to be fought, but you know the idea of taxing the meat the 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 industry seems um, seems a bit. Well, it's really interesting because like there are, I think it's just the difference between, you know, mandatory spending on whatever qualifies as quality journalism and then something that's kind of more philanthropic because you can see some of these social media companies will strike a deal with some of the major outlets and wires to do things like fact checking and to kind of sponsor the journalism that is meant to improve the quality of the content on their platform. So there's a convergence happening there that's interesting right now. But that, again, is kind of a voluntary effort for for big tech, right? And so I'm interested to see how it plays out making, you know, contributions, because the argument right now is that it's for investment in quality journalism. So if those contributions are mandatory rather than directed by the companies themselves, like how that changes the narrative. Because you can see, like, check any wire service who is putting money into their fact checking right now. And it's it's the big social media companies. It's it's interesting. It's also quite absurd to see Rupert Murdoch. Oh, now, I know. Now emerging as the defender of the free press. I mean, look, right. look, 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 you, look, 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 I mean, you've, you've had, you created the tabloid press, uh, the, turned it into the monster it was. And then, you know, it's very hard to make sort of a moral case for, you know, quality journalism. I know. That's true. <laughs> so I'm, you know, I'm, you know, we all defend, I mean, obviously, yeah, you know, we, some of us are journalists, uh, you know, for many years. And obviously, we, we've been observing this trend. It's been difficult to create an, an economic framework for good journalism to thrive in. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're all struggling with this. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, there are no obvious medium. There are niche media models, but there are no obvious large media models right now. I have no doubt that this will emerge, but they will not be, these will be different people. This will not be the the old publishers who who will run that show. Yeah. Um, Okay. So next up, we wanted to take a look at Germany and the vaccine and pandemic politics that are beginning to split the CDU, CSU, and also split public opinion over whether it's a good idea to get a vaccine or not. Yes, but it was a very important week for Germany and the vaccine. So because Germany had a year where they all thought they they are so much better than everybody else. That they're, <laughs> and, and there's something to do with uh, whatever reason they thought might be behind it. But as we saw, the you know, it, it's uh, the, the virus has had 
very unpredictable effects on countries. And even today, we've, it's not that easy to actually draw big conclusions from you know who who was affected than than others. We saw obviously some statistics and mortality rates this week as well, excess mortality rates, which are probably the better statistics. Yeah. But they are also mixed. They don't give you very clear. They're higher in England, um, surprisingly relatively low in Sweden. So you know it's very hard to draw strong conclusions from those from those data. But what emerged in, in Germany this week? The two things that happened in Germany this week. For the first time, it became genuinely political when the newly elected CDU leader Armin Laschet publicly went against Merkel's policy of lockdown. Mm. Um, And he says, look, we're doing a great damage to our children and uh, to our society. We can't lock us up forever. And there is support for that view in Germany, as there is support for that view in Britain and other countries. Um, Merkel and the Bavarian Prime Minister, Markus Söder, who is a candidate for, for Chancellor, um, or a potential candidate for Chancellor, shall I say, I mean, obviously competing with Laschet on this point, but Söder supports Merkel. Yeah. And uh, so this is a genuine conflict that that's now playing out at the top of the CDU-CSU leadership with the CSU and Merkel's an odd, odd, odd alliance. Normally, you know, Merkel is Laschet would be expected to be on Merkel's side. So this is these are kind of swap positions. But but Laschet is in charge of a big industrial uh, estate with lots of industry, lots of people who are unhappy. So he has decided that this is his best way, probably forward. I mean, it's not completely cynical. He's been a lockdown skeptic from the start. He's been a reluctant convert to it. He's now rowing back. This is not something he, you know, he he naturally supports. Whereas Merkel is much more sort of data-driven, science-driven, believes in science. And she's a scientist herself. She listens to her scientific advisors who say that there is the the UK variant out there. It's, it's definitely growing. The number of infections are rising slowly. Uh, the two things that push against it is a that is the summer, and so the, the, the people have a you know there seems to be the virus seems to be less virulent in the summer uh, uh, for a number of reasons, and the other thing is it is lockdown because the, you know even in the UK the virus infections came down mainly because of the lockdown, yeah, and and now secondarily because of the effect of the vaccinations which have now uh, affecting some fifteen or so million people. Um, uh, so these are two effects that are coming coming together, but the vaccination effect hasn't happened in Germany yet. So if they if they released the lockdown now, uh, and the virus were to spread, and the you know the summer effect were turned out not to be as strong, that that's her thinking. And Laschet says, "Look, let it be it as it may, but we, you know we can't we can't just do that." I mean, um, Laschet puts himself up as uh, the candidate for the families, right? Yeah. Where, where families, families' values, families' lives, pitching them against science, the scientific mm-hmm. kind of background, which is kind of a dangerous framing of the debate, isn't it? Um, yeah, seen that <laughs> in other countries as well. Once you put a, um, once you say, okay. Uh, science is one thing, but actually, you know, our families have to live. I mean, France has chosen to keep the schools open, which was yes. a, a very different choice than the German ones. And uh, well, only history will tell us later whether this was a good choice or not. At the moment, the, the bet seems to be working in a sense that it goes slowly down without even having the same uh, amount of vaccination in place. Uh, I mean, the numbers are better than before, but it still is not not comparable to the UK. And yet the schools are open and there is no, uh, there's only curfew in place rather than a full lockdown as in Germany. Yeah. I have to 
give a very strong high five to whoever was behind that decision to keep the schools open because I do given what we're seeing right now with trends I think it was the correct decision and you can definitely understand why the sentiment would be to end the lockdowns and kind of go against the scientific um, advice that's been given but in other areas like as you were writing about Wolfgang if you raise doubts about the science behind the vaccines themselves that can have um, other very serious consequences and that was one of your big stories this week um i mean the what happened i mean in in france macron and uh, you know the macron and his very bad move <laughs> and his uh, european minister Monsieur Bourne, who's speaking a lot. He's wily, uh, isn't he? <laughs> uh, they have raised doubt. I mean, basically, they said that the vaccine is ineffective. And I mean, look, you know, when you do that, people believe you. Mm-hmm. And there are. Um, and, and, I want to believe. I want to believe. And, yeah. you know, if you say the AstraZeneca vaccine is is not working, then, you know, there will be people who will, will take this up. Then came reports in Germany that it, of, of strong side effects. Um, which are odd. Um, I mean, the, the we know that all the vaccinations have side effects. People do feel a little bit, you know, yeah. under, the, under the weather for a couple of days. These are flu-like symptoms, nothing like COVID. Mm-hmm. You know, this is a thing that just some some uh, these these viruses are, at least the AstraZeneca, as I understand it, has been been uh, embedded in another virus this 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 vaccine so there is a is an active virus that affects your system and that's that's sort of a, a natural reaction to expect uh, but apparently a quarter of staff of one hospital or one medical facility in germany didn't turn up for work the next day after receiving the virus yeah so we we don't know that these are sort of reports that sit at odd with what we're hearing here from the uk where that virus is being, where that vaccine is being used on a, I presume on a much greater scale than in Germany, given the sheer numbers of vaccination and the fact that AstraZeneca is one of three vaccines in use in the UK, so it would be used. Uh, and we haven't heard these these side effects. But then again, we might not actually report here on uh, low symptoms, maybe, maybe. right? And uh, yeah. that's not something it's, that the UK does. Uh, sort of, yeah. if there is a cold-like symptom, that would probably not yeah. feature on the bigger ones. Like I don't want to diminish the experience of these people at all but if it was me and i got vaccinated i would probably you know be celebrating with my other colleagues who got vaccinated like i think we should probably know why they didn't turn up for work the next day because you know and, until we actually know yeah, that yeah. maybe <laughs> like, i would be out on a bed we don't want to make allegations i know i don't either <laughs> be very cautious yeah, if I mean, people were genuinely it, sick i'm sorry it that, I said that, that, but... that that it's possibly that they have a different threshold of of uh, declaring sickness. I don't know. There, there were no reports of uh, of adverse effects that were serious. Like nobody yeah. got very, very sick. That, that that apparently we didn't see the reports of that. And one also has to look at the. Well, there, it seems to be also a difference in countries that have a largely, you know, a, systems of relative private health, like Germany, and where yeah. they have, Austria have, as well, and Austria, where where people are insured, but the 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 actual relationship to your doctor is, is you know, your doctor is like a private company. You can change them. Uh, it's a service provider, and people look at the vaccine as a service they get, and they want to get the best service. And they yeah. they got it in their brain that this German vaccine or that the American vaccines are the better vaccines, and the British one is not so good because it apparently doesn't protect us well against the South African variant, which is not the most prevalent right now. The real prevalent one is the the old one and the the, the new British one. 
Um, so, so and that that's the price signaling as well, isn't it? Because and it's uh, cheap, absolutely it's cheap. And yeah. for some, for people, the psychological effect of the price me it suggests yeah. that oh, okay, it's cheaper, therefore it's less valuable. <laughs> vaccine connoisseurs. Yeah. I want the best of the best. <laughs> yeah? I mean, what is so shopping for vaccines? What is fundamentally misunderstands is that the that the effect of the vaccine is not like it's not like a product we get for ourselves. Yeah, the, it's it's a it's a group effect. It's a public public good effect. Right? Uh, if you know, if if eighty percent of the population gets uh, vaccinated, uh, you are so much less likely to be infected. Uh, as a result of that, it doesn't matter if the vaccine you receive is ninety percent effective or ninety three percent effective. That does not. That is not the main, the main, the main factor. There will be cases where that will be the main factor, of course. But the main protection as a result of the vaccination program is a creation of herd Im- immunity in the population. And that is the case with all the vaccines that are on the market. But yes, it may cause adverse reaction to your individual. So if you look at it as a purely sort of private health issue, then you might race for the best product out there. Mm-hmm. But that's kind of missing the point of this pro- of this yeah, program. I mean, I I would absolutely agree with you on that one. And hopefully we see, you know, less vaccine skepticism in the future and a little bit more. I mean, I don't want to say like willingness to ignore what the authorities are saying about the vaccine, but in this case, yeah, I mean, casting doubts on the, you know, on the effectiveness of it, I think was was not a great move. And the data in the UK show, show that, I mean, there has been a very strong fall in infections and fatalities yeah. and the, and the, because it, the vaccination has now affected the most vulnerable age groups, which is the over 18 year old, they all vaccinated, yeah. they all, they all got the vaccine by now. And the um, so that's already showing up in the data. So so you know it would have had that effect in any case. You know, it doesn't mean you know it's not clear that children should get it. Uh, you know I think the reason to have a large vaccination program is to basically produce a degree of normality that can that allows us to open to return to our lives. Yeah, to survive and, and live with that's it. The main thing. So it's not a. You know, it's um, and if that happens, then it will be um, a, a positive, a positive thing. All right. Another topic we wanted to look at today that we, as we've said previously, we've covered extensively, but it now looks like five stars splitting in Italy. Um, what can we expect for the next tumultuous few weeks and months in Italian politics? Is is Draghi going to be able to handle this? That's very hard to say. It's a huge job he has. Um, uh, he his program is very intelligent. You know, it's it's the first time that we find ourselves in agreement with uh, with anyone who with any sort of agendas. When people <laughs> in Italy talk about reform, they're talking about something very different from what we used to talk about. But Draghi says reform. The priorities are good. Uh, you know, reforming the the, sec, the public administration, which is not only bloated but also actually in the way of business activity. It delays business activity. It, it makes it it imposes unreasonable regulatory burdens uh, and costs and compliance costs it, reforming of the judiciary not the criminal justice system which was the priority of the previous government but the actual the civil justice system a lot of cases civil cases are held up in the courts there, there are examples of civil cases taking seven years and you know if, if you're a small business you have no legal certainty in, 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 yeah. in an environment like that uh, so it, the idea is to create a business environment that people can operate on with a degree of predictability 
And that is, uh, you know, a, a, a value in itself. And it could raise potential growth because it removes the main impediments from doing business in Italy. If you're a small entrepreneur in Italy and you would have the choice to do this in Italy or in another country, you would normally do this in another country. But now if you, if you give people, you know, this is not to, for Italy to become more competitive. It's just to create a, a system that's similar to that in France would just create so much more economic activity in the country. Mm-hmm. The difficulty is that Draghi's agenda is politically not legitimated. Uh, he has not stood for election, but he, the MPs that voted for him have not campaigned on that issue. And we're seeing the five stars splitting over this, over supporting this, this agenda. They, they, uh, and the group of rebels have been expelled from the party. They might set up their, their own group now, uh, a left wing group that is outside the government. Yikes. And Georgia Meloni, the leader of Fratelli, um, she is the only one on the right who is opposed to the Draghi administration. So there are, there would then be two groupings, one on the left, one on the right, that could mop up some of the discontent. That is invariably going to going to happen with any reform. Mm-hmm. Seen this in Germany, the, the 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 welfare reforms created massive discontent uh, with the with the elite. Um, if um, the results of these reforms will not come through immediately, so the the the, the costs are always will always initially outweigh the benefit, and the benefit will ultimately, if if the reforms are good and well executed, will eventually catch up and um, outweigh the costs. Uh, but that does usually not happen inside an, a single electoral cycle, especially since this one is only you know taking two years. I see Draghi as a one-year prime minister who starts off a few things, and then um, the political system will eventually have to have to um, spin can. him out. <laughs> Absolutely, and, and and do do its <laughs> do its own job. Uh, uh, but you know, this is not a sustainable solution. I think people are putting far too many, having too holding too high expectations into what he can do. Yeah. Also, what he can do for Europe. The idea that he can, you know, because of who he is, becomes the sort of European leader, mm. misjudges the nature of his job that he has been appointed to uh, in Italy. And um, you know he's he's not going to be uh, starting to launch big debates on the on the reform of the eurozone or so. I mean, he we know his views, but you know he has a job that he needs to do. And if he can do ten or fifteen percent of what he wants to do, it'll be worthwhile. Um, but you know, it's the but the the financial markets, political commentators are. F- almost naively optimistic about what a single person can do, whoever he may be. It's more of a wish list, right? It's a, yeah. not really a realistic one. Not Santa Claus. <laughs> um, well, speaking of the leader of Europe, uh, Susanna, you were writing about Macron's um, targeting of Le Pen as the opposition candidate in 2022 and how his efforts to fight her might actually mainstream her views, whereas his war against Islamo-Goshism Goshism? Goshism. 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 Are equally, you know, uh, non-helpful to his campaign. So how, what is the political landscape in France looking like right now? Well, I think in the last two weeks, um, the Macron and his team had two different lines that they were peddling um, with respect to Le, Le, Marine Le Pen. So one was the <laughs> interior <laughs> minister, 
this who guy went on the uh, on television France to uh, to debate with Marine Le Pen, and the whole debate was surreal. Uh, and he caused huge um, huge avalanche of Twitter and social media responses because what he was doing is um, sort of evoking the presidential election for for start, telling her that she needs to work a little bit harder, and that she's going soft on Islam, which even astonished her that she didn't see it coming. Anyway, that was that was the whole outrage that came from that. And the, the, the reasoning behind this way of uh, trivializing or putting her into the mainstream was that he and his team argue that uh, to demonize her hasn't worked in the past. So we need to change tact. That's sort of the, the, the raison, raisonnement behind it. Now, the, the problem with this position is that if you're at the same time lashing out against the left, which actually happened this week with the, with the science minister. Oh, uh, yes, and the battle against universities, telling universities that there will be an independent study in, uh, to identify those Islamo-Gushists, which is a, a term coined as a combination of the far left people um, using the is Islamists as a way of getting getting at capitalism. Yeah, so this is the term. Have they met far left activists? I don't think the strategy is that well thought out. Like, yeah, no offense. I mean, it's, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it is a term. Some say, well, if there are no Islamogoshists, why is there so much outcry? So there's sort of a lot of <laughs> there's a lot of screaming at the moment about this debate, and now the university presidents go up in arms again. Against uh, this uh, attack on what they see as their independence and saying you have nothing to do, this is academic, uh, this is sacred ground, and you're not going to enter the sacred ground. But what it does in terms of the strategy against Le Pen is that if they go after the left, uh, that they might actually not go to vote at all. Uh, yeah. Ne- yeah, next year. Abstentions. Abstentions. That actually could benefit Le Pen. Uh, in the final door, because she's really running ahead in the polls. So those who, and also she has a much more solid ground, solid base in terms of voters. So now she, that she becomes more mainstream herself, uh, not mainstream, but she presents herself very presidential, tries to uh, um, be moderate and uh, tries to signal that she's open to compromise. All these kind of things put her to a mainstream and make her presidentially electable um, amongst not only her own people, but also amongst uh, sort of the conservative. And it's also just kind of funny to see um, Castanet looking like the reasonable one when he calls her <laughs> an enemy of the Republic. <laughs> Against Darmanin, who, yes, his comments were taken out of context, but that was a very surreal debate this week yeah. and really, you know, raised a lot of eyebrows for all the all the wrong reasons. Um, is there anything else we wanted to discuss? Wolfgang, can you give us like a sneak preview of what your column is going to be on Monday or you still? I haven't got the foggiest. <laughs> okay. <laughs> right. So it's going to be, stay tuned for big surprise on Monday, guys. It's going to be excellent. Oh, and I would also just like to note one of the funniest comments I have ever read on our Twitter today, which is a suggestion from one of your followers that you should rename Euro Intelligence to the Institute of Gloomy but Unavoidable Truths. (laughs) We're taking that into consideration. (laughs) We'll mull it over. Thank you for that. 
All right. Uh, that's it for us this week. Thanks for listening. Until next time.